Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I did this last week, and it's a pretty common thing to do. When you're looking at the book of Romans, you tend to divide it into sections. Right? And chapters 1 through 11 is the first part of the book, and that's a section that's devoted to doctrine. And then starting with chapter 12 all the way to 16, that's more application. And that distinction between doctrine and application is so common, you'll find it in virtually every commentary on the book of Romans. And it's a good way to orient yourself in the book of Romans. It's good, but it's not great. Because I think it can be a little bit deceptive to think that suddenly at chapter 12, Paul has entirely switched gears. He's no longer concerned about doctrine. Now he's going to give us practical how-to-live kind of stuff. So you don't want to have that distinction too firmly in mind. Some people will divide it up this way. They'll say something like chapters 1 through 11, that's all kind of justification stuff. And then once you get to chapter 12, from 12 to 16, that's sanctification stuff. That's not only not a good way to divide the book. It's a terrible way to divide the book. For one thing, we know from having covered the ground that we do that Paul doesn't wait until now to talk about sanctification. He's already talked a lot about sanctification, a lot about what it means to live in Christ. So what I want to do is, is propose what I hope is a better way to think about the chapters to come, a better way to think about what it is Paul's trying to tell us or teach us in the next few chapters, and it has to do with living in Christ, not living for Christ. People talk a lot about living for Christ, and and very piously, and I'm not going to do that thing that people do these days, and and I hate it as much as you do, the the over-scrutinizing of language, policing the way people express themselves, if they say things that aren't exactly right, splitting hairs, that sort of thing. It's not that. So I don't want you to walk away from this and say, oh, no, on the way to church, I was thinking, I want to live for Christ, and, and now I feel bad because I used the, the wrong preposition, and the pastor called me out. Nothing like that. It, it's totally fine to talk about living for Christ. In fact, Paul does this. If you do a search in uh, the English translation we're using, the English Standard Version, and you look for those words, for Christ, you'll find them a number of times. In fact, you'll find them 12 times. Interestingly, though, most of those are not uh, using the word for the way that, that is used in living for Christ. It's often things like, for Christ has done this. Right? So if you're looking for living for Christ kind of language, there's actually only five instances. In 1 Corinthians 4.10, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, in Ephesians 5.21, he says, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in the pastoral epistles twice, he talks about being a prisoner for Christ in Philippians 1 and Philemon uh, verses 1 and then again in verse 9. So Paul talks this way. It's perfectly legitimate to use this kind of language that, that we do things for Christ. But here's what's interesting. Paul is much more likely, and New Testament authors are much more likely to speak not of living for Christ, but living in Christ. If you search for that expression, you find that expression in Christ 89 times in our English translation, 89 times. And that's leaving out all of the, the, like, in him that means the same thing. 
So a lot more prevalent this way of speaking. In the book of Romans alone, we've seen this time and time again. In chapter 6, we're alive to God in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. In chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In chapter 9, Paul speaks the truth in Christ. And we'll see next week in chapter 12, uh, verse 5, that we are one body in Christ. What's the difference? What's the significance? Just one little preposition, does it really make that big a deal? I'm going to suggest to you that, that sometimes it does. Because we talk a lot about living for Christ, about doing things for Christ. This is the way Christians who are wanting to kind of dedicate themselves to the Lord express how they're going to live. I'm going to live for Christ. And living for Christ, if you think about it, implies something like this. Jesus did something wonderful for me. And now it's my turn to do something wonderful for him. He's done something for me. Now I'm going to do something for him. According to that kind of logic, if you're dividing up the book of Romans, you might look at it and think, okay, uh, chapter 1 through 11, that's really about God's grace. And now in chapter 12 going forward, that's about my obedience, my response. But if you look at it that way, I think you miss something that's really important to the true doctrine of sanctification, to, to a real understanding of what's happening in the Christian life that, that living in Christ captures. Because living in Christ implies that Jesus is doing something wonderful in me. And it gives me the strength to live in him. You see the difference? Jesus is doing something wonderful in me. It gives me the strength to live in him. According to this logic, we might look back on the ground we've covered and think, okay, Paul's told us in 11 chapters what Christ is doing in me. And now, starting in chapter 12, he's going to talk about how to live in Christ, how to live in the strength of Christ, how to live in the grace of Christ, and how being in Christ changes everything. So that's what we're about to embark on. That's the study that we're about to begin here. We're about to learn how to live in Christ, how the ongoing saving work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit guides us in a new way to live. As Paul begins to speak of this new way of living, he has a, 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 an expression that sums it all up. You're looking for, for a, a simple summary of what life in Christ is all about. You find it in his expression living sacrifice, living sacrifice. You're confused about the kind of life that you've been called to live in Christ. You're not sure what sorts of decisions you should or should not be making. Living sacrifice is what you've been called to. You've been called to become a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's some interesting things in that verse if you look underneath. You look at the original expressions in Greek. Uh, He asks us to present our bodies, our, in Greek, our somata. Soma is body. So psychosomatic illnesses where you're physically sick, but it's all in your mind, that's a combination of the psyche and the soma. So he's calling us bodily. He's calling us not, uh, let's say, as our whole persons, but with a particular emphasis on our physicality, on who we are in the flesh. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, he's talking about total worship. And we talk about um, all of life is worship. We use that expression a lot in the Reformed world. All of life is worship. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to say that all of life is worship? In what sense is going to work worshipful compared to going to church? How does all of life become worshipful? That's the question that's being answered here. All of life is worship when you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That language of presenting should be familiar to you. We looked at that at Romans 6. You remember in Romans 6, chapter 13, oh, sorry, verse 13, Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When we looked at the, the Greek there, we saw that presenting of your members is language used, uh, members, instruments, that's uh, weapons of war. And to present yourself is to show up for duty, to show up for battle, the way that soldiers report for duty when they're called upon. That's the kind of presentation that we're being told here. To present is to show up for the fight, to show up to do what you've been called to do. Christ gave his body for us as a sacrifice. And now we will present our bodies, but not for death. We're called to be a living sacrifice, which is different. Not called to die on the altar, but called to live as a sacrifice. So what is a living sacrifice? When we talk about making a sacrifice, we talk about giving something up. You think about all the things you've had to sacrifice in life, all the things you've given up. Those are sacrifices. But a sacrifice is more than just giving something up, because you've given up a lot that wasn't really a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice to give up your bad habits. It's not a sacrifice to give up your sin. Because sacrifices aren't just giving up, they're giving up for the sake of another. So not just giving something up, but giving something up for the sake of another, that's a sacrifice. So there's loss in sacrifice, but there's also representation on behalf of another. Those two things together make it a sacrifice. So a living sacrifice, which is the core of our Christian calling, to be a living sacrifice is a continual giving up of self on behalf of another. A continual giving up of self on behalf of another. That's a living sacrifice. To put it really simply, God comes before self. God comes before self, and also others come before self. 
other, other somas, other bodies come before our own bodies. We sacrifice our bodies for the body of Christ, the body of the community, which we've been called to. We sacrifice our bodies, our well-being, our wholeness, on behalf of the bodies of others, the well-being of others. That's what it means to be called to make a living sacrifice, a willingness to give up what has been given to us on behalf of others. And not just God. Not just that we sacrifice because God must come before self, but also because others must come before self. That we cannot serve him. We cannot sacrifice for him without sacrificing for one another. You think about what it means to be a living sacrifice Before God, it means using our gifts for his glory, not our own. The gifts and talents he's entrusted us with, using them for him and not just to aggrandize ourselves. Submitting our judgment to his and living according to his wisdom in his way, not our own. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice to God, shaping our desires to his. But to be a living sacrifice to others? means submitting to one another. Sometimes it means foregoing good things, good pleasures for the sake of others. Not doing what we could rightly do because we're concerned about the well-being of others. Seeking the comfort and the welfare of others, even if it costs our own comfort and our own welfare. That's what a living sacrifice is. Oftentimes, when we come to church, we're looking for messages of comfort. But instead, what Paul is giving us is a message of hardship, a message of sacrifice. And the weird thing is, if you reflect on this and meditate on this, it resonates. This call to self-sacrifice, this call to be a living sacrifice doesn't leave you cold. You don't hear those words and think, oh, well, no, sorry, I'm done. I thought this Jesus thing was all him giving and me receiving. If I have to give, I'm out. No. You hear those words and you aspire to that. There's something about sacrifice that feels true, that feels right, that feels part of what we are as human beings. George Orwell did something really interesting during the Second World War. Uh, George Orwell, of course, is the famous author of the book 1984, kind of a political uh, novelist. wonderful prose stylist, highly recommend George Orwell. He fought against the Nazis. He fought against Hitler, but he was a writer, so he fought the way writers do. In 1941, he wrote a book review of Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf. You do what you can do. He wrote a book review of Mein Kampf, and in that, he recognized something that uh, is kind of fascinating to reflect on. He said, Hitler got something right about human nature that not everybody understood. He was trying to explain the appeal of Hitler. How is it possible that, that cultured and civilized people, people who knew better, people who were clearly more educated and smarter than, than their leader was, how could they be susceptible to the words that he spoke? To explain that appeal, Orwell pointed out that both the socialism of his day that, that he believed in and the capitalism that he did not 
fundamentally misunderstood human nature. That at the core, what they said to people was the same thing. I offer you a good time. I offer you comfort. Whether that comfort is going to come through a a new social order or it's going to come from the free market, I offer you a good time. In contrast, Orwell says, Hitler has said to them, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And the result is, he says, that a whole nation flings itself at his feet. But why is that? Why would they do something so seemingly crazy? Orwell says it's because human beings don't only want comfort, safety, short working hours, hygiene, birth control, and in general, common sense. They also, at least intermittently, want struggle and self-sacrifice. The gospel clearly calls us to extreme self-sacrifice. When we turn the gospel into merely a message of comfort, when we preach Jesus as if all Jesus is is a way to get what you want, as a way to sort of live a happy, well-adjusted life that doesn't require sacrifice, when we preach the gospel as if the only things you have to give up when you live in Christ are the things that are bad for you, the things you didn't want in the first place. We don't do justice to the fact that we've been called to extreme self-sacrifice. The gospel is much more than a plan for personal happiness and comfort. When we preach the gospel that way, we're doing exactly what the socialism and the capitalism of Orwell's day did. We're, We're thinking what people want to hear and need to hear is simply, I want you to have a good time. I want you to be happy, something like that. But people actually need to hear more than that. Of course, the gospel call to self-sacrifice is exactly opposite to the Hitlerian call to sacrifice, that appeal to what is darkest in human nature, appeal to people who just can't accept happiness and just have to have strife in their life. That's not what Paul is speaking to. Paul is speaking to is our createdness, our dependence, our understanding that in order to flourish and to be what we were made to be, we must live in Christ. The sacrifice that we are called to make does not bring death. Sacrifice that we are called to make brings life. Living sacrifice, a life of pouring oneself out for God and for others, fills the world with life and not death a different kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that isn't about getting at the other. It isn't about destroying our enemies. It's a sacrifice that's about loving our enemies, about pouring ourselves out and sacrificing for the sake of our beloved adversaries. A wholly different kind of calling. That's the call that we have on our lives, a call to be living sacrifices. To live in Christ requires that we live according to a new pattern of existence. If we're going to be living sacrifices, we can't live according to the ways of the world. In verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But that word conformed, I'm going to slaughter the Greek here, but it's a 
systematisesta, which <laughs> I'm not going to say it again, but I hope you could hear a little bit of an English cognate in there. It sounds a little bit like our word schematic, schematic or blueprint or plan. To, to be conformed, in this case, it, it's more than just, like when we talk about conformity or, or, or not conforming, you know, for us, conformity is you like the music everybody else likes, but I'm not a conformist because I have different tastes than you, that sort of thing. Um, this is deeper than that. This is, is conformity to a plan, being made according to a pattern. When we look back on people in the past, it's always easy to find fault in them. They always fall short compared to the standards of our age, right? But when we discover that our heroes all have feet of clay, there's, there's a phrase that we use to, um, to paper over their faults, to, to, to explain away their sins. We say, they were products of their culture. They were products of their time, which is true. But when people say that, they often don't reflect in the way that they too are exactly the same thing. But yes, people in the past were products of their time, of their culture, but so are we. We too have been shaped by our times, and we congratulate ourselves for believing the things that everybody like us believes, as if it makes us somehow unique or individual, when in fact we believe what our generation believes to be true, more or less. We have as much in common, if not more, with unbelievers, atheists of the 21st century than we do with believers of the 1st century. The way we see the world is largely the way everybody else like us sees the world because we have been conformed. We have been made according to the pattern of this world. In a deeper sense, Paul is talking about that shaping. He's not just talking about being conformed to Hellenistic culture, Roman culture, or American culture. He's talking about being conformed to the culture of sin. That human natures corrupted by sin are inevitably stamped according to the mold of a culture that is systemically sinful by nature. Human beings have created institutions that are very human in that they are very sinful and they have shaped the people who are part of them. In other words, there's a schematic of life and sin, and we are made according to the pattern. We are conformed to this fallen world. Paul says it must not be that way. You can't live in Christ if you are that way. Instead, you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And to be transformed in Greek, this one's easier, it's metamorphosusestai. It's easier at the beginning. It gets harder. But metamorphosed. Metamorphosis is a word we use all the time for utter transformation. To, to, to go from, from caterpillar to butterfly is a metamorphosis, right? An utter transformation. And Paul says we must be utterly transformed in this way. But to be transformed in Paul's sense is nothing less than to be stamped according to a different pattern. A new pattern imposed Upon us. Instead of the schematic for life in sin, we must be shaped by the plan for life in Christ. But how do you discern that new plan? That's where the renewal of the mind comes in. Talking about how to know God's will, how to discern God's will. 
But the way that you discern God's will, the way that you know what God has for you, is to see the new pattern. So when you think about it this way, how do I know the will of God? The question you're asking is, how do I see this new pattern? How do I see the, the pattern of life in Christ? How do I discern that? A question many of us have, most of us, all of us, at one point or another. But Paul says there's just the one path, and it's the renewal of the mind. The mind must be renewed in order to see what you want to see. Again, renewal here, and a kinose. So kinos is uh, new, Anna is again. So literally, renewal in Greek and in English is, is again new. Again new. So to be restored to what you were, to be made new, but after the pattern, what you were made to be, that's renewal. So not transformed into something that you were never intended to be, but rather restored through transformation into what you were intended to be. First, our thoughts must be shaped by God's thoughts to break the pattern of sinful thought, and then we can discern the pattern of life in Christ. But of course, we remain sinners, and that's why this is a knowledge Paul describes as spiritual. It's why we get insight into the will of God, the purposes of God, and the way that we ought to live. We receive those things, those glimpses, those insights, through the work of the Spirit. Spirit works as our minds are renewed, as God's thoughts, as God's words shape us and remake us into the image of Christ. Want to discern God's will if we want to know what God wants us to do, how he wants us to live? We have to begin with new again minds. Only then we recognize what is good and acceptable and perfect. John Murray, the theologian, has a fancier way of saying this. He says, the basis and spring of sanctification are union with Christ, especially in his death and resurrection. Union with Christ. This is, of course, a struggle for us. And as we progress through the chapter, we'll have to confront the different ways in which we struggle to live in Christ. Struggle with life in Christ Largely because we try to live it with minds that are still conformed to the old pattern. We try to follow Christ without first being reshaped in his image. We attempt to live a life of obedience, to do things for Jesus, before we're really walking in Jesus. It's also a struggle because we try to live in Christ with bodies have not been presented to God for service. We believe it's possible for us to please him and to walk with him and to walk in him, and yet not to have presented ourselves to him, which has our reasonable service, our life of worship. So as we embark on Romans 12, as we think about what these words mean to us, I'm going to give you a few challenges. A few things to keep in mind over the weeks ahead. First one is this, put everything on the table. Put everything on the table. Please don't approach this text in a self-satisfied way, as if it has nothing to do but comfort you. Instead, let's assume we are not living as sacrifices. 
let's assume that we're not giving up what we ought to give up, that we're not sacrificing for God, and we're not sacrificing for others as we should. Let's start with that assumption, and then let the Word speak to us about how that might change. In other words, let God shape you, and stop trying to shape Him to fit your world better. Over the course of the next few weeks, as we ask ourselves what it means to live in Christ, the one thing to give up on is that constant effort to take whatever Scripture says and to reconfigure it and to turn it around so that it fits with what we already believe, with the commitments we've already made, so that we can affirm what Paul says and what Christ says without having to deny anything. Set that defensive mechanism aside. Instead, start thinking of what you will sacrifice for God. Start thinking about what you will sacrifice for one another. And let's stop asking ourselves what it means to live for Christ. Instead, strive as a body and a mind to live in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.